Welcome to the Autism Through Cinema podcast, investigating autistic presence and expression on screen. This podcast is brought to you by the Autism Through Cinema project, based at Queen Mary, University of London, and funded by the Wellcome Trust. For more on this project, please visit our website, autism-through-cinema.org.uk, and follow us on Twitter, at Autism Cinema. This podcast brings together a group of autistic and non-autistic thinkers, academics and cinema lovers for discussions on films and TV programmes with a particular autistic interest. We look at the representation of autism, the ethics of performing autism, as well as where autistic expression may have been captured, sometimes inadvertently, by the movement of the camera and the use of sound and imagery. We are always interested in our listeners' thoughts, comments and feedback, so please do share these with us by dropping us an email at cinemaautism at gmail.com. If you like what we're doing, please subscribe to the podcast and share our episodes far and wide. In today's episode, the team discuss the 2017 drama The Rider, directed by Chloe Zhao. In this recording, you will hear the voices of Janet Harbord, Stephen Eastwood, David Hartley, Georgia Kumari Bradburn, and Alex Widdowson. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoy the discussion. Today's film is, of course, The Rider. It's, it's one of the more recent films that we're, we're looking at. Um, it's one of the reasons I suggested this film, whether Stephen had seen it at a festival and has seen it again since then. Um, it's a film that got good reviews generally. And of course, Chloe Zhao has just made another film that's, that's doing very well. So it's quite interesting thinking about her, her profile with this film. Um, it's a film that has uh, an autistic character who, who is autistic. So it's this kind of standout film in terms of the things we've looked at so far from that respect. I think personally, I'm just going to say a few things and then open it up for people to, 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 to take part, you know, lead a discussion elsewhere, really. Um, I was thinking about questions of performance with this that on the one hand it's brilliant having a character who is autistic and um, is uh, is not being performed and then I began to think actually is she being asked to perform autism um, so that's sort of like where fiction meets meets fact or, or the real world in this film I think is quite interesting and of course that's the case with all the characters who all, all, are all playing characters that are their own names um, and are to a large extent themselves, particularly, uh, well, I think a lot of the characters are lead character um, and, and several others. Um, so the, the, the film kind of proposes that for us, I think, like where is the line between um, the story and, and the real life? It's set in this sort of epic territory, um, very historically, very macho territory. Um, and I think that Lily... Uh, is there as a kind of counterweight in a lot of ways to a lot of this landscape and the um, sort of macho approach to life. She seems to be a sounding board for her brother. Um, and she also seems to uh, be an important part of the film's moving around the question of freedom. Who has freedom? What kind of freedom? Uh, and I think Lily appears to us as quite a free character, particularly in that discussion about her bra and then her, her cutting up of the bra, um, that she's not going to be confined and restricted. Um, 
And in a lot of ways, she seems a lot freer than her brother, who is weighted with these ideas of what it means to be a man, um, of how to make money with a father who drinks and is not taking that kind of responsibility. Um, So... Those, those, those were the, the thoughts that I was having when I was watching it. I thought there was links between her and the mother, who of course is dead and, and we don't get to see. So she's possibly also, um, you know, a link to that maternal line in, in the film. I thought that the film was, um, didn't give a lot of space for women. It's, it's a film that's very much about a masculine culture. Um, and so Lily's quite interesting in that respect. Do we see her as, as refusing a role in uh, taking up a feminine position? Um, or do we see her as, um, you know, offering that link to the mother and actually continuing a tradition that's just a bit outside of the main discourse of, of rodeo and um, the heroic rider? Okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stop there. Hmm. I thought I'd just jump in with a quick thought I had, which was um, in many ways Lily's role is sort of, um, in some senses she's a bargaining chip for other people's sense of morality. Um, so I remember there was, the, there was the negotiation over the horse being sold uh, with the father and the lead. And mm-hmm. Lily, uh, the father comes in and sort of ends the discussion by saying, don't you think Lily needs a roof over her head? And so she's this sort of symbolic vulnerability in the film that everybody else is sort of conscious of and mm-hmm. the patriarchal sort of positions of masculinity as the protector, the providers, mm-hmm. sort of competing for that role. Yeah. But whilst also she is sort of out of the scene being discussed and a similar sense of uh, sort of overprotectiveness comes in in the bar when I'm afraid I, what's the lead character's name? I can't remember. Brody. Brody. Yeah, Brody, yeah. Brody um, sees his friend like joking around with Lily and it's ambiguous as to whether or not there's any threat there or not, but presumably not because they're all friends. And Brody sort of overreacts uh, as a way of channeling frustration from another circumstance. Again, to sort of step in the way and overprotect his sister, even though, there probably was no harm. So it's it, in some ways she's a sort of it, within this sort of patriarchal world constructed by the female director. She is this sort of bargaining chip, a moral one, mm. where people are sort of performing their sort of heroic versions of masculinity. Mm. I wonder if she sort of slips out of that though. Although that's the effort of the male characters to do that, there mm. seems to be something that's quite resistant. To being positioned in that way. Yeah, yeah. I don't think she's playing into it herself. If anything, it seems to be like she's quite dismissive of any actions like that. And if those conversations were happening in her presence, she resists it. Mm. Mm. I think it was interesting what you were saying, Janet, about it being a, quite a free character. She is. She's probably the most free character within the the, the whole film in one sense and not in the sense that she's free to be outside of that family unit but free as in not wearing the things that everybody else is wearing not um not taking part necessarily in everything else but just seemingly actually quite happy there's actually one point where um i think it's brady's uh was talking about how she 
she used to she used to be she used to have a lot more uh, anger or she used to have a lot more um a lot more problems where she would she would have meltdowns i think he sort of suggests towards it but that recently she's calmed down a lot by, the, by from what he said and it was really interesting that she was positioned in that way that yeah she was this kind of vulnerable character that everybody that the, the father and brady seemed very protective of but on another sense was curiously quite free uh, and and outside of this very masculine uh, environment that everybody else was performing their way through in some ways um so i don't know i mean i don't quite know how i how i feel about her as a character in some ways i was it was really refreshing to see her and it was especially refreshing to see her to sort of listen to her way of speaking like that's not a way of speaking that necessarily features very often in in films particularly film with autistic characters it tends to be a bit more the script tends to be a bit more streamlined and a bit more sort of concocted for for the, the autistic voice whereas she didn't seem to quite be able to grasp the right words at the right times but that didn't seem to necessarily bother her and Brady always seemed to be able to understand what she was driving at which I thought was really refreshing and really interesting and it's just such a um uh, such an such a yeah a good thing to be able to see in a representation of autism I think Hmm. sorry that ended up being quite rambly but then yeah uh, not not at all yeah that's interesting isn't it and and when she was singing that that had that sense Mm. of her being very much in herself Mm. um and i'm thinking about her having learned the words for that and that's a time in which she seems um to be able to be to have quite an impact on those around her those moments are really nice going to come in um, sort of building on this idea of Lily as voice. Because I think, Janet, at the start, you said, is there is there a kind of a doubt or a, a feeling that that voice or the, 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 the as, you, as you said, David, the kind of um, the slightly unformed or the almost quotational sort of style in Lily's um, delivery of lines, is there... Is there a feeling or a suspicion that those lines have been kind of overly fed? Like, mm. you know, and is that is that part of the reading? Or is it just or is it just that Lily uh expresses and articulates in a way that isn't necessarily a part uh, sort of naturalized to the, the 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 rest of the film? And I suppose that's where my interest is, is that um the sense of her um not necessarily uh, conforming to the to the kind of like the discourse around her makes it seem like she's somehow um, uh, a, a, a disruption to that space. But is that is that is that the, is that the positive function of autistic being in the world, or is it the difference that she has to how the others have been directed around her? And I suppose that's. That's, it doesn't settle for me. Hmm. That makes sense. There's a kind of different naturalisms, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah, it would be really, in some ways, quite interesting to see. Uh, I don't know whether this would be interesting or not, but it's interesting to see how the director um, uh, sort of coached 
the the actor, I suppose, um, to to whether to how far a lot, how far those lines were scripted and how far they were perhaps um, improvised. I don't know. There's no real sense of quite how strict the script was for for Lily. Um, uh, but it, it, in a sense, it's like if if there was quite a, a quite a strict script, then Lily as the actor has done a really great job of 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 acting that 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 those roles um she seems very naturalistic and uh her scenes are very they're you know quite touching quite moving yeah and and i don't know i i, I mean i haven't seen any sort of like documentary or behind the scenes or anything like that about this film so i don't really know what that process was but yeah there is a, an interesting question mark around how the director um managed to work with Lily as an act as an actor as well as a, a character. And I guess there's also an interesting question about is there any difference in the her methods for working with Lily and working with the other um, uh, actors? I think they all share first names as their real uh, life roles. Or no, sorry, their, yeah. their actual names are the same first names as in the characters. And there are these sort of there's these clues that the, the director was very committed to naturalism in terms of working with non-actors, in terms of finding roles that are very similar to their actual lives um, or comparable in what certain ways. So, I mean, we're all just inferring here what, what might have been or what did happen. But I think the comparison, you know, it would be interesting to see if uh, all, the treat, all the actors got the same treatment or if there was something if there is some sort of adjustment that the director took to account for autistic difference in performance, or is it, or was she just, there was there a sense of sort of equality in the sense of how she approached everybody? I mean, maybe we don't, we never treat anybody totally the same. We're always adapting, but um, I'd be interested in those sorts of answers or that sort of observation. I did read, I did read an interview with her where she was talking about, this and her first film and how she, as she's Chinese, she doesn't have, she didn't have the kind of uh, the expectations and knowledge of, of the genre of, of Westerns that she's assuming American um, Americans do. Um, but she was also talking about going into that community and how she felt um, that she, that it would have been really problematic to make a documentary that those people would have really resisted that. But to make a fiction film was was completely acceptable and people wanted to do it. And I think that sort of speaks to some of what we're talking about, about what you were just saying, Alex, about, um, you know, whether it's scripted or not and, and how she might have directed them. I think it's that it gives her permission to direct if it's, if it's fiction, but it was also their stories. Um, so there's, it sounds like something, some sort of collaboration there must have taken place. Um, but I, I also wanted to, I was thinking about vulnerability when we were talking, when we're talking about the people playing themselves and I, I wonder what other people feel about this, but, um, I felt that the character of Lane was incredibly vulnerable and mm. I, 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 I thought about his acting in a way that I didn't think about Lily's acting really. Um, I, I was thinking, um, 
he, you know, that he, here is a disability on screen and it's not fictional, it's real. And it's part of this story where he's not the main character and he can't be the main character, it seems, because he couldn't get back on the horse, whereas the other guy could. Um, there seems to be a whole lot of kind of prescriptive things that come into play around Lane. I just wondered what other people felt about him and watching him. It brings to mind um, Vivian Sobchak and her text on the sort of boundaries between documentary and, and fiction. It's sort of fracturous moments within live action when you something feels too real to be fiction. Um, I think the example she gives is a is a, an actual hair being shot during a film compared with a fictional character dying in a film. Mm -hmm. And the audience has this sort of phenomenological reaction to that difference mm -hmm. in circumstance. I forget the title of her essay, but um, it's sort of well, it's well referenced within documentary literature. Um, yeah. And so Lane's sort of, he's not performing his disability, he's performing his role with that disability and yeah. that seems like a profound sort of threshold that is in a way maybe present in Lily's character as well but more ambiguous because um well because her disability or is is uh, maybe less restrictive I remember I saw the film at its premiere um in Rotterdam and um, there was a big buzz around the film and I remember Charlie Phillips who's um, head of documentaries at The Guardian said why is everybody talking about this film as a fiction film it's a documentary it's a great documentary like let's uh, let's own it for what it is okay there's creative treatment of actuality but that's happening all the time in documentary but these are real people this is these are their real lives and I seem to remember reading an interview with Chloe where she, I think she had said that Lane, Lane's experience had informed the storyline for, for Braiding. Mm. So, um, so although he, he isn't a central character, he's the inspiration for the p p potential trajectories of the central character. Um, and the film really packed a punch for me when I saw it. And then I saw it again when it was on, had a cinematic release in the UK. And uh, I felt very differently towards it. And I felt much more manipulated by it. And, and I felt mm. as though disability, um, whether it's, uh, or, or, you know, or difference in, within the film is being heavily drafted in, for me into quite, um, sort of generic kind of button pushing sort of story uh, markers that are, of course, about masculinity and about choice. But I just wondered if anybody else feels that, I suppose I'm being quite uh, provocative or perhaps being asking too much of, of a film like this, but it feels as though underneath this what seems like a progressive kind you know much more inclusive representation is the same old disability is used to emotively make us think about um you know the uh heroic journey of a of a character mm. 
who ends up riding off in the sunset, you know, getting back on the horse, these kinds of like mm. rhetorical devices. Did anybody, does that resonate with anybody or? But isn't the message of the story not to ride off into the sunset peacefully, but to stop riding and to give up and to actually sacrifice one's sort of masculine tropes? I suppose it doesn't really matter. It's to me, <laughs> you know what I mean? That there's still, it, it, the, 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 it's, it, the, really what's at work here is story. Mm. I, I mean, that's my point. If we go back to um, sort of the idea of uh, the tropes that are presented by um, Murray, Stuart Murray, I mean, which ones are we playing into? Is it not, do we not sort of trans, uh, rise above a lot of those tropes and is there not progress being made in representation? We don't have any, we don't have the sort of, uh, I mean, we do have the sort of slightly useless father of the autistic child. That's definitely a trope that's there, but we don't have the heroic mother. Um, and we don't have uh, autistic silence, the quiet observer, but maybe she isn't pivotal in the narrative enough or could have been more pivotal. Is she, is she narrative prosthesis though? Is she, is she just a sort of, supporting character for Brady's uh, development as a hero you know is she the, the 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 innocent and the vulnerable that ultimately teaches him to turn away from his um, masculine dr- drive towards performing at that rodeo and you know, the, the, I don't know it's for me it's really it's a really interesting uh, film in terms of its depiction of disability generally because like, yeah, I think you're right Stephen on the one hand it's um, it is pushing a lot of familiar buttons in terms of the, the story tropes that it's hitting uh, in terms of disability but on the other hand these are really the actually disabled people who are who are depicting this and it, I thought that the inclusion of Lane I thought it could have been very easy for the director to not include Lane in in the film and to actually think, let's not go there, let's not touch that kind of thing, but actually spends quite a lot of time with Lane and shows him shows him the the struggles that he faces, but also some of the joys that he he gets out of the interaction his interaction with Brady and the care that's that's there that's that's quite. Um, gentle and and uh and and heartfelt um you know this is such a masculine and such a sort of aggressive world and i must admit that i i, I did the, the things that i struggled the most with was was watching how the horses were treated that was the thing that really um that i struggled with um uh but but i did actually find the moments between brady and, and lane to be quite tender and and um genuine and authentic in some ways but uh, but there is still a question mark as to whether this is yeah is it is this disability being exploited for sentimental value um or not but otherwise you know a character like lane a person like lane both as a character and an actor would never necessarily be in a film like you know in a in a narrative film in a drama film that's not a documentary so on the one hand, I was like, "Yeah, this is good. This is representation." And on the other hand, there was there was still the sentimental story beats 
don't know. It's complex. It's a complex and interesting one. In a broader sense, I I really liked how um, the inclusion of like an autistic person in the film, it wasn't, because I feel like a lot of the time, it's um, the story will centre around the person and it will be about struggle. Um, and I found it personally quite refreshing to see, um, you know, I mean, Lane's a different a different story, but with um, Lily, that it was, um, you know, she was happy and she, again, she had um, some freedom. She was, you know, it wasn't about her struggle. Um, yeah. She's, I think she's just allowed to exist. I think in, in some ways, I think I agree that they kind of use her for that emotional, the emotional beats in the narrative. Um, but I think more than that, and as, as well, um, it's really nice to see uh, representation for autistic girls because mm. often it's often it's boys, you know, but um, or like um, sort of seek like a high functioning girl um, represented in a film it was really interesting, and I think um, I don't I don't I think her I don't know if she had so she did have a purpose, but also to just exist within the film and not to be. Yeah. Uh, a point of like like a character who struggles and I, I think uh, representing joy in autistic people is also really important because there's moments there's moments of trauma but there's also moments of like euphoria and freedom and I think it's really important to show that that's just my what I got from it yeah I totally agree with that definitely Georgia can I can I ask you what you thought of the bra moment because um <laughs> I, I thought there yeah, were. I had, I had that moment. <laughs> <laughs> that was. I watched that and I was like, "That's me." <laughs> and I, I thought there was a way. I thought there were at least two ways of reading that, and, and one, a kind of conservative view, might be that the the dad in particular was trying to protect her, like trying trying to, you know, yeah. encase her sexuality. You know, we're going to go to this bar we're going to use this place people are men are going to be there they're going to look at you so it's kind of a way of contain containing her sexuality and and kind of limiting her in some way and um uh, well I guess maybe I've only got one thing to say about it and she but I, I mean what, what I found in that moment was not that she was throwing off the bra because she was an autistic girl but throwing off the bra because she was a girl right it's just like you're not yeah. gonna you're not gonna impose that on me I don't want to wear that um and maybe that was also I don't want your protectiveness um but I didn't read that as being particularly about her autism or if it was she wasn't she wasn't wearing it literally I, I, I think I think it can be related to how it is in terms of autism because I think there's a rejection of um certain norms and um you know like uh, what we're expected to be like so that seeing through that um need for um I don't want to say desexualization because she's a child so it doesn't really apply but um like um but yeah I also get what you mean uh, in terms of I, it, this that kind of uh theme could apply to anyone any female character any you know any character in a film of rejecting that um restriction but it's interesting when you apply it to autistic to autistic person because there is that need to see things um objectively you know do I really need this why am I being told to to have this this is restricting my my own comfort right uh, and the fact that she like literally cuts up the bra um 
you know, I, I understood that because, you know, there's sometimes you just, if you don't see a need for something, you know, you destroy it. <laughs> and, she, and she wasn't apologetic about it. Um, which I think, yeah, it's another thing. Mm. Mm. And, she, and, and the film allows her to do that and it, it shows yeah. her what she goes off. It does, it, this film itself doesn't pull her back, <clears throat> I don't think. Mm. I, I think the film allows her to be herself. And it doesn't punish her for that for that moment either. It's like there's no there's no follow up scene where the dad gets particularly angry about the fact that he, she's just cut up this 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 quite nice bra that he's just bought, like used his like he's clearly not got very much money and he's gone and bought this for her and she's just immediately cut it up. It's yeah. nice that there wasn't then a follow up scene of him getting annoyed about that unnecessarily or shouting at her or you know that he just seems to brush it off, which was quite quite a nice um, thing as well because I think that might have been quite an obvious dramatic point to put in if for, for a different writer or a different director. Um, but that doesn't happen. And instead we're just left with what is probably the most amusing scene of a very bleak film generally. So it's nice that that, that remains in there um, and, mm. and is preserved in that way, I think. Yeah. Like, I like that it wasn't about her struggle. So they didn't, they didn't have to put any repercussions on her because she, you know, she's, you know, she's a she's a teenager she's she's allowed to rebel whether she's autistic or not like that's you know yeah there shouldn't be repercussions yeah it seems like um you know the younger characters in the family are all sort of negotiating with this father constantly and i think that idea of negotiation and outmaneuvering one another i mean it was just a moment of success for lily to say well this is a consequence for you buying me something that i'm never going to use and you can't force me to, so pay the price and I'll destroy it. <laughs> um, it does seem like there are these negotiations in the power dynamics that take place in many families as the children get to teenage. Yeah. So well, maybe someone with kids can comment on that. I don't know. Well, yeah. <laughs> I just wondered if it's possible to take the reading... So it occurs to me that possibly the most well-known film that deals with an autistic character who's a woman is Temple Grandin. And that I'm just wondering what, how we can think of the rider in relation to Temple Grandin, which is a film about another kind of rodeo. You know, it's a place where... Uh, animals are central to sort of, uh, you know, are, are identified with, but they're also brutalized, you know, and it's interesting how um, Temple Grandin identifies with uh, the cattle, but then uh, produces processes to harm the animal, so well, to, to sort of like transact the animal. Mm. And I'm just wondering about, maybe I'm taking it a little bit too broad, but about Brady's relationship to the horses and his ability with horses and his inability with other humans, whether or not there's anything to take up there that sort of think, uses autism as a kind of way of thinking through the other characters that aren't necessarily presented as being autistic. Yeah, absolutely. I, I was having some of those thoughts about, about the horses. And um, I hadn't made that link to Temple Grandin. That's really interesting. Um, I was thinking about David's comment about the, the difficulty of watching. And I agree, I had that difficulty with, with the treatment of the animals. 
Um, and also the killing, not just the horses, the killing of the, the rabbit, is it, yeah, when he's, yeah. he's shooting. Um, and that moment of what's real and what's not. But with the horses, it was, I mean, I think it's really, we've been thinking about what the director didn't do as well. And I think she didn't make the autistic character have the special relationship with the horse, which yeah. is really quite interesting that it's it's the brother who has that. Um and it's also interesting the way that, that horses keep cropping up. There's Temple Grandin, but there was also, sorry, not horses, animals, but there's also the Slaughterhouse when, that opens on Body and Soul, which is for David and Georgia. It's another film we were looking at. Yeah. Um, so the animals keep cropping up in these films as quite central, quite central concerns. Quite, I'm not quite sure what's going on. They all seem a little bit different. Well, in all three, there's affinity to the animal and there's also... A brutalizing of the animal. Yeah. Hmm. I was always struck by a friend of mine who was on the spectrum saying how he much preferred animals and children to the rest of us. And he just felt like the communication was so much simpler and more direct. And I don't know, I, I guess I, I always think of him whenever we, whenever it comes up in these films, because it does, it comes up in every film we've watched so far. <laughs> But yeah, it's very intriguing. There's a lack of like um, social codes and um, f- um, fallacies uh, and things like that when you're talking <laughs> with like um, yeah, like you say, animals and children. It's, it's the communication is much easier. But I do get how that can become kind of exploitative when you're constantly pairing, you know, an autistic person with. Um, beings with a lower brain capacity essentially um mm. so i don't know i haven't seen i haven't seen the film so but well um the film you we were talking about so i'm, I'm not sure but um mm. yeah i can and and the idea of brutality as well is interesting because with i think also with autism there's this huge dichotomy between kind of love and affinity and violence and meltdown and that there's a, such a fine line between the two so I think it's interesting to to see how that behavior is inflicted upon um other other beings people animals mm. yeah. That's, sorry go sorry yeah I was just going to say that this is something I've becoming coming across a lot in my own research recently has been this kind of uh autism animal affinity i suppose or this kind of intensity of i got kind of like a, an intensity of fellow feeling with with animals um particularly particularly cats actually and um uh and horses and, and, and other such creatures i, I was what i was going to add into that for me was um because my so my relationship to autism is that my my older sister is autistic so I, I often come at it from um, the, that position of the of, of the sibling relationship between brother and sister and and, and how that um, how that what what occurs in that kind of sibling relationship because I think it's similar but different to the parent child relationship it's there's something unusual going on there and so with this connection of like Brady having a, an autistic sister that he obviously um, feels very protective over I think that's quite a common common trope in the representation of siblings actually um of a, of a neurotypical and an autistic sibling um but also that then I don't know whether that then 
suggests that he he has this almost this special affinity with horses because he's um because he kind of has grown up with a, an, an autistic sister and therefore has developed um a, a, a kind of a a deeper connection or a deeper understanding of different mind states i guess i don't know whether i'm trying to articulate that correctly or not but um it's certainly one of the things i think about a lot as a sibling of somebody who is like my sister is actually quite similar to to, to lily you know speaks in a quite a similar way and is similarly wouldn't 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 be able to live on her own and that kind of thing um and i've grown up with a, a quite a large attachment to animals um which is one of my other interests. And so I don't know, there was something within all of that, that, that I seem to sort of connect with, with Brady, or even though I don't necessarily agree with the breaking in of horses or rodeos or anything like that. But when he was doing the kind of moments where he was he clearly quite strongly connecting with a, with a horse and, and feeling that, that, that strong affinity, I, I, there's something within that that I connected with that I read that resonated with me in in that sort of triangle of animals, autism, and non, and your and being a sibling. Um, there seemed to be some sort of connection there that that, that really worked. Hmm. To pipe in on the uh, sort of sibling narrative. Um, my sister is a vet, and I think there's some. Uh, I think there is something about working in an industry that involves animals being right at the crux of humans' abuses of animals as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, she has to obviously put down a lot of animals and it's a financial reason, mostly. Mm-hmm. And, and the ethics are totally different to medical, medical practice in humans. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, the, the characters we've been looking at just happen to work in an industry with animals and then are exposed to the brutality of the reality of that so um you know i'm not sure how autistic difference says very much about that but it certainly says a lot about economics and capitalism and uh, and humans relationships with animals yeah um, definitely. yeah but then i mean maybe there's a parallel as well my brother has uh, down syndrome and my sister has a very strong relationship with him that sort of beats all the rest of us in the family. They, they really chime. Um, and I think her caring sort of instincts uh, may, may be related to that. I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. And of course, animals are, are increasingly involved in, other, in lots of care settings. So you have animals that are brought in um, for people who have clinical depression. Or people that are, uh, I, I mean, in my experience working on a film in a palliative care setting, animals were often brought in as for therapeutic purposes. I suppose partly because of what you're talking about, Georgia, about the kind of um, perhaps a kind of uncomplicated, um, sort of like non-socially coded co-presence and a tactile, a sort of tactile sharing as well. I think I, that was really interesting what everyone's been contributing there. I, I find that fascinating. I'm going to go on thinking about this. But what, what you were saying about the social coding, Georgia, I think there's where that then goes to with animals and, and autism is 
it, it's kind of it, 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 the path seems to fork. That on the one hand, there's the kind of Stuart Murray critique of this, this the special relationship, you know, the kind of the qualities that are a bit extrasensory or magical. But on the other hand, there is there seems to be a very real sense in which um, people with autism have a sensory affinity that is is different to people who are highly articulate and think in a very rational uh sort of more predetermined way if you like and are sort of less able to apprehend um a sensory way of being in the world that animals in, inhabit and i mean mm. my my thought about that is that animals are actually not so much lower intelligence, but but other oriented, you know, mm. to to the world, and and in some ways far far superior to us in what they're able to to predict, to to sense yep. with their bodies, and you know, you know, I've I've got two dogs, they're like way ahead of me when mm. in, in terms of working out what's going on the weather and the smell and so on, you know, um, and 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 it's you, you kind of you get a, a glimpse of that sometimes in these in these moments of films that are about autism and, and 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 animals yeah i think that's a really interesting comparison um because i think i think often people fall into the trap of um when when you're dealing with autism you tend to like romanticize it and um in the same way that kind of like indigenous indigenous representation in film is kind of like romanticized and um made into kind of like mythical kind of magical beings um and i often find that but also like like what you're saying on the other hand there is a real kind of um comparison with not with with the animals not being like lesser than humans but having a different way of interacting with the world that is just as um compatible and is just as um um valued um it's it's a different thing because that's that's always been my point of view with autism mainly with like um high functioning autism with low functioning it's different because you've got to take into account um you know care and, and stuff like that but um it's interesting to see it as just um, a different way of interacting with the world rather than reducing it to just certain behaviours as people can do with, with animals and stuff like that. I was talking to uh, uh, somebody who's, uh, I think she's working with um, Stuart Murray at the moment, uh, Anna Stenning, Dr Anna Stenning. Um, I don't know if any of you know her, but she's uh, working currently on a on a project about um, autism and nature writing um, and memoir. Um, and I was I'm in another group with her, and I was speaking to her about this sort of broadly about this subject about this topic, and she was talking about how there's a there's a kind of sort of creeping danger that um the autistic affinity with animals and the environment more broadly is becoming is sort of starting to replace savantism as the kind of the autism magic if you will of like the the connection that connection with the environment and it partly to do with um the sort of ascendancy of Greta Thunberg and her uh, as being a being Asperger's and partly to do with quite a lot of nature writing like particularly Chris Packham's um, autobiography Mm. and a few others 
uh, how there's now this almost this suddenly this kind of like idea that autistic people are going to be saving the environment with their magical affinity with animals and 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 that that we neurotypicals have not been able to to deal with. Um, it's interesting. I don't know. I don't know what her conclusions on this are or where this goes now. But it's um, it's interesting to see that as potentially some sort of a, a kind of shift of 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 how we might be starting to think about autism in, in present day. I don't know. Mm. I, I mean, I think, I, th I think that is really interesting. And I think that's, you know, I, I think there is a real danger there um, of, of thinking, of, of positioning that as some kind of magical quality. I, th I think there's also a way though, in which I think in this project, we keep coming back to this and, and trying to hold on to it, that, that the project isn't about autism. It's about autism as a sort of optic that we're using yeah. to look at things. And if we think about, anim we think about animals through the optic of autism, what does it tell us about animals? Not what does it tell us about autism? You know, and there's, mm. there's, there's, there's a difference there. Mm. Um, what, I mean, one other thing to add to that, I've, I've just, finished reading Catherine May's um, The Electricity oh, yeah. of Every Living Thing, you know, about her book about walking. And, and yeah. I would say that's a really good antidote to the autistic person who has an affinity in nature. You know, she's so furious yeah. with her boots getting muddy and wet yeah. and all sorts of, you know, and the wind that defeats her. And it's not, you know, she, she precisely is kind of like ranting about not yeah. having those properties. So it, it's a great book that actually, I, I, I love how she just, basically has this plan and then halfway through it just crumbles and she just sort of gives <laughs> yeah. up and it's like i'm not going to do this anymore it's like yeah that's fair that's absolutely fair yeah yeah well thanks very much for joining us really nice to meet you david at last and um georgia thanks very much yeah, for, yeah for thanks for having me yeah yeah that's been really nice okay and thank you for inviting me to Oh, well, it's a, it's a pleasure to have you here. Okay, so um, we'll be in touch and hopefully see everyone in a couple of weeks.